You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mike, Lou, and Greg Muscala, welcome to Talk of the Difference. Greg, welcome back. And Mike, welcome for the first time, although we've talked about you on several occasions. So for the people who haven't experienced Teenage Dick just yet, can you tell us what the play is about? Uh, yeah, it's an adaptation of Richard III that takes place in high school. And um, Greg uh, commissioned me through his company, The Apathite. Um, I think that originally there was a batch of like around four commissions, right? Um, where yeah. you were uh, uh, seeding new work for disabled actors and um, looking at sort of uh, social responses to disability. Um, sure, well, the mission of my company uh, briefly is just to uh, explore and illuminate the disabled experience. And I, I thought the best way to do that was through uh, better narratives uh, around the disabled experience. And so, uh, just looking at the theatrical canon, obviously Richard III is arguably the most famous disabled character in Western dramatic literature. Uh, so uh, why not take a stab at that? So Mike and I had met um, years ago at uh, Ensemble Studio Theater through Youngblood, and uh, I just knew he would be uh, just based on who he is as a person and a writer and uh, an artist. I knew he'd be a, a great fit for this, the kind of story that I wanted to tell, with supplanting the you know. Shakespearean tragedy into a modern day American high school yeah, in the so, world of elections. Uh, Greg really gave me that concept and that title and um, then was like, run with it. And uh, um, also um, thought of having uh, multiple disabled actors in it. So we, uh, we cast uh, the role of uh, Buckingham as Buck um, as a wheelchair user, just so that it's not like one character who's like the avatar of all sort of disability. And um, that was really it. I didn't write anything for like a year, but I um, reread Richard III from kind of like a structural perspective. And like, how did Shakespeare put this play together? Like what, you, like what, is, what are the uh, techniques that he's using to have Richard sort of lure you in and get him to root for you? And then um, how, how does, just like, how is it built? Um, and, um, and then, marinated on how to translate these like big sort of uh, royal ascendancy stakes into high school where everything feels really life and death and feels really big even though 
its kids. Um, and uh, yeah, that's sort of the stew that it came from. And then I also thought a lot about language and sort of how to incorporate Shakespearean language and how I could use that as like a, as like a way to set Richard apart from his peers. I, I first saw a workshop of the play back in 2016 at the O'Neill. And then like, it's been almost six years since that happened. And during the first part of the pandemic, because only God knows how many parts this is going to have. But during the first part, a lot of people were talking about like, okay, we're home, we're isolated, we're on our own. We should all be Shakespeare, right? And we should all be like writing this. Like if Shakespeare did it, why can't we? So I'm really curious, Mike, for you, since you've been living with the play for so long, did the pandemic invite to any rewrites or changes that were directly affected by what was happening uh, globally? Um, not for this play. I, I find that like um, my plays are like, uh, it's like a several year project of like, what is what do I see in the world? And, um, and it's like a little bit of a time capsule because, uh, um, because I'm synthesizing for quite a while and then and then like here's my sort of working thesis of like what the world is right now. So I don't feel like the pandemic is gonna figure into that until like the next play or the next next play. For this, um, because we're going back to live theater, there's a lot of like um, logistical things that Willie Mammoth has taken on in terms of how to bring back live audiences and um, how to safely go back to work. Um, I mean, your rehearsal process must have been so nuts in terms of, the, but like the actual text of the play has not changed that much. No, no, no. And Mike's right. I mean, Wooly is fantastic. They're doing everything uh, from the standpoint of COVID safety that they possibly can think of, which is really great and uh, much appreciated and necessary, obviously, in these uh, pre-post-pandemic times that we're living in. Um, but I think what does stand up really is the the politics of the play. Um, even even though you know the original play and that whole Richard the Third is part of a larger history cycle, um, you know, and so that play has endured for you know half a millennia, um, and uh, I think we the play started or the idea was pitched at the tail end or second term of the Obama administration. We were working it through the Trump administration. Obviously, now we're in. <laughs> like a new administration, but I think the, the politics still work and at its core, like I think that's where people can, that's a great entry point for people. Um, because if you, even though, yes, there are disabled characters in this play as it, uh, you know, as it should be, and that's the whole point of this particular play and this commission and uh, kind of allowing uh, disabled actors and disabled storytellers to have agency over their own narratives and whatnot. But I think um, for those people who uh, maybe aren't necessarily with, uh, don't have experience or exposure to uh, disability per se, they at least may have an understanding of Richard III and the political nature and machinations of that. So that is kind of the universal entry point, uh, I think, for, for most audiences, which has been really great. But we, we just had a conversation backstage yesterday because um, I think that uh, the representational politics within theater and, you know, film TV too, like is so rapidly um, evolving that like, since this play was originally written, um, several years ago, we were just talking, touching base about like, does this still resonate in terms of disability politics today and like uh, in terms of representation today? And uh, I think that, uh, I hope that it'll resonate with people still, but, I, but it feels as though this um, question around like uh, how 
disabled artists are being represented and um, you know, it's feel, it feels very present and, and this take on it, like while it shouldn't be the only take and is not the only take, like uh, still feels like it has something to say. I'm assuming that you're at the Wooly dressing room right now. We're in and... the rehearsal studio. This is the costume rack, yeah. <laughs> okay. So Greg, I do want to hear everything about the rehearsal process. Like, I mean, you've both been away from theaters for so long and like, do you just want to move into like a rehearsal room and like a dressing room after being, you know, like apart for so long? Uh, yeah, you know, it's it's all the joys of theater with like 10 times the anxiety, you know, um, it's like uh, it's it's been complicated, I will say it's like it's incredible to be back here to be doing the thing that we all, you know, uh, have, we're, we're put uh, on this earth to do <laughs> right, you know, <laughs> this crazy vocation that we, uh, you know, have decided to engage in, um, you know, and being denied that for 18 months, because unfortunately, the the all the things that make theater great is what this virus uh, feeds off of, you know? Um, so, um, and so, yes, there, there was some trepidation, but we had great conversations among, uh, you know, the staff here, among the ensemble here, uh, kind of about, you know, wherever, whenever you need to articulate anything, you know, let's talk, you know, keep masks on, do whatever you're comfortable with. We get tested weekly, sometimes more than weekly, um, you know, so everything, um, you know, um, the theaters, the community, theater community here in DC, they formed kind of a coalition of theaters here. So everyone's talking to each other. So there's a lot of communication. Um, there's social distancing happening in the uh, audiences uh, now that we're in um, our preview period and we open on uh, Friday. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we're figuring it out. Um, and we will, if anything comes up or if anything happens, you know, we'll obviously take every precaution. But I feel like so far, it feels like as much as the actors and uh, the production team and all those people are learning what this is again, it feels like the audience is learning that too. But, you know, it's so great to hear uh, in the opening announcement, you know, welcome back to live theater. The audience just goes, you know, uh, like so uproarious. Like, so to know that they're already on your side immediately from the top of the show and that they are just, you know, they're rooting for you as much as, uh, as we're rooting for ourselves. You know that to have that feeling again and to be one of the first shows back I, you know i don't know how long that will last but it's really it's really great to to just have that experience and share in that experience and be pushing towards uh you know uh normalcy and a return to to live entertainment was it easy for you to slip back into richard after you know being also like apart for so long like do you feel like do you find that you've learn new things about the character, like found new things about yourself that now are undeniably a part of who Richard's going to be during this uh, run at Wally Mammoth. Yeah, I mean, obviously I've been with this play for quite a while and, you know, um, done it a few times uh, or one major production, I guess, previous to this. Um, and uh, for me, I have to keep it uh, interesting. I have to keep it alive, I, you know. And for me, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but, um, um, theater training, acting training isn't built uh, or simpatico for people with disabilities. So uh, I feel like the only way I've had opportunity to really grow, gain experience and learn on the job is because there is material uh, and parts that I can actually participate in. Um, that has been very true of my professional experience, you know. Um, so I'm actually using this as an opportunity to grow, become a, you know, 
become a better per person, human, but also a better actor throughout that because um, there were lots of barriers that were, you know, uh, up for me in terms of uh, training and accessing pedagogy and things like that. So to be able to inhabit a character and be able to bring uh, my full humanity, which includes my cerebral palsy, which includes my disability, um, I think is a really a fantastic thing. And I'm really, again, I've had the privilege of being part of this play and um, and Cost of Living, you know, by Martina Mayoke. And what I love and having originated those plays, you know, and so what is what is really, really special is that some 14 year old kid, you know, anywhere in America or across the world is now going to go, oh, there are two plays out there, you know, not where there's just one disabled character, but two in each of those plays. And that is a, you know, I, I don't take that lightly. I feel like that is an incredible honor, um, you know, and like if, if there's any kind of legacy or lasting stamp that I have, um, yeah, on this thing, in this profession that I've chosen to do, I'm, I'm very, very, very proud of that fact and very proud that I can embody this um, and bring this story to people and bring that bring the conversation uh, that this play can engender to a wider audience uh, across the across the country and, and the world, the globe, really. So no offense to the Bard, but I don't think I would say, I've, I've sat through Richard once and that was enough, but I can sit <laughs> and I can happily, I can happily sit through Teenage Tick like every night if possible. And I've always been really curious about like, what was the entry point for you to make this play that's so overwhelming and at times like, I mean, for lack of better words, um, tedious, like, you know, it's like, it's like constant, it's like steamrolling of like evil up until the end. And what was that entry point for you, Mike, to make it not only as poignant and as moving, but also like so freaking funny? I um, pretty much all my plays are comedies because I just think that it's like a really it opens you up and it you know and it's um, uh, hopefully layered enough with the comedy that you can watch it multiple times and absorb different things. It almost feels as though it's like a, um, how do I put it like a like a vessel that lets me do other things. So it's like, you know, like while you pay attention to this comedy, I'm gonna like work on this other stuff back here. And um, you know, hopefully you absorb that too. And and um but the initial impulse was was really thinking about the historical president uh, press historical precedent of Richard the Third as like sort of this intrinsically evil guy because of his disability versus all these clips that Craig kept sending me of um this like demonstrative inclusiveness of like high school football teams that were bringing in a disabled kid for a touchdown and this like um, real sort of like not taking in of a 3D person, but like uh, you're either this trope of somebody that's like a devil or a trope of somebody that's like this, you know, pure saint and having no wiggle room to just be a person. And um, so I wanted to put Richard in that and so that his tragedy is not like, to me, Richard III is like this um, morality tale almost that it's sort of like this person who should not have tr tried to rise above his station gets struck down by society and now order is restored and that makes me feel better. And it's act like, I wanted to do a more psychological portrait where you have somebody that is like partially through self-sabotage and partially through people's preconceptions boxing him in and uh, him sort of going into a self-destruct cycle because he's unable to break out of the, those um, preconceptions and, and just like, look at that psychology um, 
was was yeah the kind of swirl of impulses that went into it. I think like some of my favorite Shakespeare adaptations are in fact those that take place in like teenage worlds and you know like Ten Things I Hate About You and like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Were were there any Shakespeare adaptations that made you maybe fall in love with Shakespeare more, or were you just like really brilliant, incredible theater people who were like reading the place and were like, I get this, I'm in. Well, you you have like a pretty encyclopedic knowledge about because sometimes you'd be like you have to read this this history cycle in order to understand this one line. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, again, it's like, it, uh, uh, yes, to all the Shakespeare adaptations or like high school or most of them. And obviously we're playing on all those tropes. Like there's a, all the kind of 80s, 90s, you know, early aughts uh, teen movies and tropes. And like, I think we're, we're not shying away from that right. um, at all. Uh, but again, it, for me, it's really about the the archetype you know, uh, of Gloucester, who's not just in Richard III, he also appears in Henry VI, Part Three, and I think has more, some of the most beautiful speeches in the entire canon, you know? Um, and he's really grappling with his own humanity. He's really grappling with his own identity in that Elizabethan world. And again, we're just kind of, we're, we're really kind of po positing the question, actually it was in, in early conversations, you know, it was Mike's agent who said, so are you guys saying that people's perceptions of disability haven't changed in 500 years. She did say that. And we're kind of like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> you know? Uh, so, I mean, if the dominant tropes of disability, as Mike mentioned, are, are overcoming adversity, you know, being an inspiration or dying with dignity, you know, how can, uh, the, you know, as other uh, populations, marginalized groups have used theater and, and storytelling to challenge, you know, preconceived perceptions and notions of uh, the communities, uh, those communities themselves, you know, that's why theater is the, the perfect tool, I think, uh, and vehicle for, for this kind of storytelling, not only because the archetype exists in Western dramatic literature, but theater is an art of flesh and blood. And right, you have to, you're dealing with real people in real time, right? And somebody has to deal with my, the, the lived reality that I have cerebral palsy, or that Shannon DeVito is in a motorized wheel, who plays Buckingham, uh, is in a wheelchair. Do you know, they cannot escape that, you know, in the space. We are breathing the same air. We are you know, having the same experience, you know, and so uh, as the curtain closes, you know, our lives will go on as disabled people. And I think that that does something, I think, to, to change the chemistry, to change neurological connections. Again, we say representation matters all the time, you know, um, and we're, you know, there's something, again, I've taken a lot of uh, learning and inspiration from, uh, from Mike, uh, other folks that like uh, Mai in the Mai's Writer Lab, uh, Mai Writers Lab, which Mike is a part of, about you know the kind of stories we want to tell and who gets to participate in those stories, you know. Uh, so the world is as truly reflective um, as it possibly can be, because at its best, you know, that's what that's what theater tries to do, or at least presents itself that it that it does. So you know, I'm just saying, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, you know, let's I do also, it. Uh, in terms of the, it feels as though Shakespeare is pretty ubiquitous in um, in theaters and in, in sometimes kind of an unquestioned way that it's sort of like, this is uh, theater that we've all deemed to be good, so here's good theater. And um, sometimes it doesn't feel as though there's really uh, an urgency behind those productions or an interpretation that countenances it uh, for the present day. So I've seen a lot of like, uh, we're gonna set this play, but it's the Vietnam War, or like we're gonna set this play, but it's like uh, modern Washington politics. And um, for me, the high school spin on Shakespeare makes so much sense because uh, 
you immediately flash back to these huge stakes and sort of uh, it feels as though everything is is as grandiose as like you know the, the, this is the, this is the king and this is a war over like who will be king and and um, and I think that there's something also disarming about um, on purpose about like uh, setting this play in high school because you think you're safe and you're like oh I get it it's like it's Richard the Third is in high school, so it's all gonna end up okay. And it's like it's just a bunch of kids, but it's like, no, actually, sometimes kids die <laughs> and like in high school. And sometimes like the consequences of high school seem so, you know, so uh life safe, but but they become life and death, and and you know, and and bad things happen. And so um in order to access like those kinds of uh big scale questions, which in an everyday context doesn't really make sense because you know I mean like we're not living in those times it actually feels as though high school is a very sort of fruitful way to do that. There's been a lot of promises that were made by the theater industry like every industry I feel like every field entertainment and we've heard a lot of talk about diversity and representation and obviously that is more than you know necessary but I'm really curious because I don't I haven't really heard a lot about parents going back to work and both of you are parents mike your baby was so tiny when when the the work just happened at the yeah, yeah. and can you talk a little bit about you know what were some of the things that after being home with your children for as long as theater was shut down things that you're not were not like willing to like let go off when you came back like have you found that schedules for parents are more flexible have you found that the industry has made more room for you not only as artists but also as parents i really feel that um that becoming a parent and uh the irreconcilability of the theater schedule and pay and and sort of set up with uh parenting is like the biggest source of attrition in our industry. And um, as much as people talk about like the brain drain of Hollywood, it, it like is less about money and more about like um, the the just this lifestyle of kind of freelance uh, theater theater artist doesn't really work well with parenting. And so you end up having to form um, solutions that are outside of what theater can often provide. And like, we were just backstage yesterday and I was saying to Greg, that, like Greg was saying, cause we're, this production has three stops. It's like a kind of mini tour. And he was saying that like, I, you know, it's not sustainable. It's probably, you know, like my last hurrah with Richard. And I'm like, I also think that like, um, um, uh, Rahana and I are, um, uh, co-writing a musical that's going to La Jolla and we're going to take our kids with us. And I'm like, this is probably our last like circus people trip with um, with the kids um, across the country for a production. And so happens for that like for the musical, we're both book writers on it. So we have to both be in rehearsal. So we have to take our kids. But um, right this second, like uh, I'm here uh, for a couple of days. Rahana's watching both kids. Uh, Sarah's watching uh, their kid and like, and we, you know, we're we're both coming from couples that are um, that are parents in theater, and and so it it's just like uh, it it does it's not a solution to just be like uh, here spouse take child like, and it's also not a not a solution to um, 
have these like nighttime schedules where you know kids have bedtimes and all this. So uh, it's something that every individual family has to work through. But I think the net effect you can really see how you have these like bright twenty somethings that get into theater and then um, most of the field evaporates by you know forty something. Does that mean if your kids spend it? Sorry, go ahead, Jose. Sorry. I was gonna say, like, does that mean like if your kids are like, we want to be theater people, you're gonna be like, no, go be a doctor, go be a lawyer. I mean, it's sustainable until they're forty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. It's it's hard because it's like I don't want to do like finger pointing towards uh, theaters or what. It's just literally like a problem that's not gonna go away, like climate change or something. You know, it's like it's it's built into the way that this industry works that it's not really sustainable for families, especially on the on the artist side. So I, uh, every family has to figure out their individual solution to that, but you can just sort of, and I think it affects also the stories that end up um, being told because it's like, we're, we're, you, don't, you don't end up seeing a lot of like um, people that are in that middle trench, like from beginning to raise kids through sort of later life, like the, like the um, you're missing out on that chunk of stories because the people that are living that are not in theater. <laughs> right, because they can't afford either time or financially, right, from a, from a time to standpoint or financial standpoint. And I would feel like, again, it, it's almost like, I, I would put almost like the, uh, the conversation around uh, access and uh, par uh, like parenting or childcare in theater in, in kind of the same category. And yes, there, it is slow, but again, I, I would think like, this needs to be a conversation with the funding community. Right, because if the I feel like if the funding on both of those issues, right, because if the funding community made it a priority to say like the nation is going this way, or this is the law of the land here, do these things need to be accessible? Childcare needs to be provided. You as an industry, right, and as a field, need to take care, uh, you know, meet the needs of your uh, community, your employees, etc., right, and make it available uh, to them. Then, uh, then funders could make that happen if if. If they said that this was a priority and, and we are making this a priority across the field from top down, um, you know how you do that, I think is a, is a different question, but I think initiating that conversation would be helpful because I feel it's happened in you know I work many day jobs you know, as an actor and I feel like there's much more flexibility in those in the non theater sector. Uh, in terms of childcare, much more openness and, and you know not that people aren't willing I just think again there's something about the nature of this work and schedule, you know, that is not conducive to the support. It's funny because it's like in a way the diversity conversation, which is already so hard, is an easier fix because you just have to change the mix of um, of plays that you're presenting. You have to, you know, make your uh, casting composition reflective of the world, and then build up audience appetite for those stories. And you know, but it's like that's like uh, that's easier to to fit within the model that exists already. Whereas if you think about like um, access for disabled artists or um, or you parent access for parents too. Yeah, like, <laughs> but like that's like a like, really that's like a structural mm -hmm. like uh, that's like a structural problem that requires money and reconsideration of your model. Which um, during pandemic times, I think that theaters were more, more more in survival mode, just pure survival mode. So it's not like they were building that out, right? But like part of why I really wanted to write Teenage Dick was that I knew that um, in order for a theater to produce that play 
they would have to think about their physical plan, make sure that they're that they're ADA accessible, and um, you know, like, okay, great, you like this story about Richard III, but like, also, how are you like, how are you literally going to do it so that the artists are able to be there and so that audiences that are disabled are able to see it? Like, and they, you have to rethink your practices. And so, you know, uh, on the parenting side of things, every time that uh, that I or Rahana accept a job and and a theater says that they're family friendly. Um, it's kind of us making a bet with our, <laughs> you know, with, with our kids that like when I arrive there, uh, that we have talked through it enough that that's actually going to be the case. And and many times it's not. Um, so I don't know. It's like uh, it's it's tough. Yeah. And I just missed the shit out of my son. Do you know what I mean? It's a lot. You know, we had this. You know, the the pandemic. As yeah, because you was, were there. Also, we were day. there yeah. every day. Yeah. Do you know? Uh, and like had this concentrated, uh, my son just turned three uh, last month, August. So, um, you know, I had this concentrated amount of time that I wouldn't have had otherwise, which is really fantastic. So to kind of, I'm also a, a military brat. So my father was away quite a lot. And I just, I don't want to, again, I'm, I kind of understand, I understand what that life is. And, you know, I think there is something about this the theatrical life that is kind of like, you know, you take your orders, you wear what people tell you to wear, you go, you know, you move how they tell you to move. You know, there's something, there's something about that life that I think is very, you know, suited to, to theater. Um, but that's something, that's just something I know. I don't want to, I, I want to, you know, I want to be there for my family and my kids, you know, and not be um, serving my country, you know, even if it's through <laughs> storytelling, you know. <laughs> theater um you know no but it is it is a, i mean for me it is a call to service and again this is uh, you know a, for me specifically you know as a, as an actor with disability being told and not seeing really there's no place for you like anywhere ever you know in in this industry um you know and that is that has started to change you know and this is the the, the play is the catalyst, right? The play is the Trojan horse, again, that gets into the institution, can start the conversation about all, all these things, hopefully, you know, ideally, uh, that's the goal. And then you share that story and then, you know, that starts a larger conversation. You know, this, this play, uh, thankfully, has been successful and has literally been all over the world, you know? Um, and again, it's giving opportunity for not only disabled actors, but actors of color. And, you know, it's it's just a fantastic piece of art. You know, Mike has done a really, really uh, incredible job. He's an incredible writer regardless, you know, but with this play, you know, in particular, it's just, this is a fantastic, fantastic piece of work. Like, uh, you know, just from a language standpoint, from a dramaturgical standpoint, from a story standpoint, Again, just it, it's it's so meaty. It's such a fantastic role. There's so many great roles for uh, any actor involved, right? And to again to show people in community in conversation, right? That's the I think even that is innovative, right? Because we're so used to at least in disabled narratives, we're so used to like the individual alone, right? And so what we're seeing is you know by making Buck a second disabled character. And a woman, do you know what I mean? We're getting a, a different perspective. You're seeing those two worldviews clash, and you're seeing disabled characters in community with with the rest of the school, with the rest of the ensemble, which is what like which is a true reflection of life, you know. So we're holding up the mirror, but I think theaters this play can also serve as a door, right? To be like, come on through, you know. Here's here's uh, here's exposure to an experience, right? And a conversation you might not have necessarily been been privy to or or had access to before and that i think is i mean that's dynamite that's why again that's that's, that's, why, that's why we do this that's shit, why do. right you know 
No, I mean, somebody came to see the show the other day, a, a disabled actor, and like I, I met him for a few minutes after, and he, he left a note being like, you know, basically saying this changed my life. Thank you. Oh. You know, like that's 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 awesome. Do you know, because again, I didn't have that as a 14 year old. Do you know, I had no I had no role models. I had no one to say like, oh, I can do that. I can do that. Do you know, you're seeing that more and more in this field, which is great. Um, with greater representation and, but it really starts with the storytellers. Again, like every opportunity, um, that's why I wanted to make connections with, with playwrights, you know, with my company and, and the commissioning process. Because again, it's like the stories are the vehicle that will support the casting of blah, 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 these particular people. And, you know, Mike has the great, as the writer, you know, has the right, right, to say, you must cast these people, right? Any, any writer, right? Um, and that must be done, you know? Um, so I, th I think that's that's fantastic. And now these are out in the world, and you know, they're and again, just to think that they're this play is one really one of the first. There there really aren't that many, you know. Um, but if it can be again to have an opportunity to, again working again, all I wanted to do was tell good stories with with friends. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like really, really naive kind of like I got a barn, right? You want to put on a play? Like, I'm really, <laughs> really operating from that mentality you know and so like that's ultimately that's that's it and so it's it's been really great you know so with Moritz von Stolpnagel's director you know we went to undergrad to, uh, together so and he and Mike have been longtime collaborators so just this it's it's just awesome you know we're here to do a job and I, I think that's one of the drawbacks of like COVID times two during this process is because the social aspect of hanging out afterwards grabbing a beer you know, like all that stuff is is really reduced, you know, and that's a that's a real shame. We even don't get that audience interact. You know, audiences clear out. Sometimes I don't miss that, <laughs> you know. But like, you know, you don't get that you don't get that interface. You know, of like, oh, thanks so much for coming, or blah 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 blah. You know, um, but really, it's that it's as a. There's been also like a little bit of a retraining in terms of uh, audiences watching, because I'm always looking during previews at like how is this being received and sort of like. Um, how do I like make sure that the tone of the play is received so that you know we're with them? And actually, I feel like audiences are just starting to learn how to be how to sit in an audience again. Yeah, <laughs> in a weird way. Totally. We're as I said, like we're we're learning as actors how to do that again, and and designers and technicians and all that stuff. And like the audience is learning. Oh yeah, I'm in a I'm in a theater. I'm supposed to. Right. This is how it works. Right. You know. But overall, again, I feel like there's an energy of like everyone's, you know, people who want to be here in the midst of a pandemic, you know, they want to be at this show. They are making the decision to be, to come and see this play as everyone should, you know, but it's, uh, cause it's great. But, uh, you know, so I, I, that, that's just a real, it's just the energy in the room is, is something different. And I think it's, it's really special. Again, now with it anxiety, but it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah, and it, it is a great show, by the way. Like, I love it. Like, everyone should go see it. Uh, the last thing that I want to talk to you about for now is I found it so fascinating and really infuriating at many points how during 2020, at least, there was this really um, fucked up, I would say, conversation about, like, okay, you're home now, like, you're unemployed, like, you have you know, there's no live theater, so you're home, which means you have all the free time in the world. So like there was almost this like very capitalistic demand that people need to be productive. And like creativity was something that was like expected almost as a duty from every artist. While at the same time, 
people weren't getting paid. Like people, like thousands of people were out of jobs. So I don't wanna talk about how creative or productive or anything like that you were during the first part of the pandemic. And instead I wanna learn a little bit about if you've had the opportunity to find and discover new ways in which to take care of your health, both physical and mental. And I'm hoping this includes uh, some recommendations for things you were binge watching or reading or listening to. This is the wrong oh, question man, for yeah. me personally. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, uh, and I don't know about you, but like uh, this pandemic time coincided with like toddler time for me. So it was just like, a, it was, it's a lot about like, how to take care of our kids and sort of like how to keep them alive. And I think that it's it's been interesting too that like with um, a somewhat return to normalcy that like my sort of bubble mentality is, has stayed pretty shielded um, because uh, the kids can't get vaccinated yet. So there is no self-care for me. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have, like I'll, I'll, you know, I, I, I haven't, I have, uh, I haven't consumed very much adult media during this time. I'm sorry that it's the wrong, it's the wrong question for my lifestyle at this time. Do you have anything no. that, you, uh, <laughs> that you've been doing to yourself? <laughs> uh, uh, I would say, you know, it wasn't the, uh, like a lot of people wasn't the best during COVID. And again, I was dealing with a toddler as well. So like, again, that kept, kept me sort of motivated and active because I, I had to go outside every day, you know. Um, uh, but I think, uh, again, just it's the psychology of an actor, you know, like the play is the thing that got me, you know, there's like this line from Fight Club. It's like, it's the reason to brush your teeth. It's the reason to keep your nails short. It's the reason to like wash your hair, all this stuff, you know? And I feel like, what again, is, what, what's the reason? Well, you know, you want to look fighting good for Fight Club, uh -huh. you know what I mean? It's like, so, um, not that I'm saying theater is a blood sport, but it totally is, I think. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, and I'm gonna be, uh, obviously I'm revealing something about my psychology, you know, um, but uh, yeah, I'm not the best at taking care of myself on a good day, you know, but I think, um, you know, uh, the job becomes the, the thing for me to build, but oh, I, gotta, I gotta get my shit together, you know? Um, it's just, actors are weird you know no that's like, really interesting i think yeah. that like because yeah. dancers dancers rehearse dancers work every they go to the bar every day musicians uh practice every day writers write every day right as actors you need so much to happen you know so much to come together before you can practice your craft so we're just kind of in a different i mean i should be doing a vocal warm-up every day i should be going you know i should be doing all those things but yeah you know um but it was also a great time to like lay fallow. And, you know, there was also that other side of the conversation of like, you can take a break, you know, you can, you can relax, you know? And I think that was, I, I didn't really, I think I'm going to definitely do that after this run is through, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I'm like really reassessing, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, this, this life, yeah. uh, I'm just at that point. And again, kids obviously change that you know, and priorities change and, and everything else. But I think um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna enjoy the ride and then we'll see. Uh, but in terms of like what, uh, what to watch, uh, we've been talking about stuff. So the, the cast right now is into um, Only Murders in the Building. Oh, I was gonna say that too, yeah. Uh, that and- uh, Especially because it's all this theater people that- Yeah, yeah, I mean, Martin, I mean, they're both, they're just geniuses. Like Martin Short is just a fucking genius. 
Um, uh, I was I, I was into nine perfect strangers, but goddamn, I don't ever need to see another David E. Kelly, Nicole Kidman um, uh, project ever again. It was just there's such a letdown. I don't know. I'm just tired of being let down by him. I just I just can't. I just can't do it. It's like you're building somewhere, you're building somewhere, you're building somewhere, and you never go anywhere. <laughs> like what the fuck? Um, so yeah, what about you? What have you been watching, Jose? Me, uh, like just last week, I found like my favorite telenovela from when I was like 10 years old on Amazon Prime. And I started watching it last Monday and I'm up at like episode 60 out of 240 right now. Oh, so wow. you're on a yeah, journey. Every, yeah, totally. And it's so exciting. So yeah, that's that's been like a lot of fun and a lot of comedies. Like I've gone back to rewatching like Ugly Betty and like I haven't watched Nine Perfect Strangers, but I'm glad that you said you're tired of David letting you down and not Nicole. So that means that Nicole's doing sure, sure, a sure, good sure. job. No, mad, mad respect. For... <laughs> okay. <laughs> <No>. okay. <laughs> so like Dolly, basically, I'm so happy that you're back where you belong <laughs> and that you're doing the thing that drives you and that you love so much. And can you remind us uh, the dates that uh, Teenage Dick runs at Wooly Mammoth Group? Sure. Uh, so Teenage Dick is currently at Woolly Mammoth Theater Company in Washington, D.C. Um, so we are in previews right now. We open uh, Friday, which is the 24th, and we run through October 18th. And then when's Boston? Um, then we go to the Huntington uh, in late November uh, and run through uh, the new year, just the new year. And then we go to Pasadena Playhouse. And, um, and they're like February, March. So this is the this has been the like full rehearsal process, full run, and then we'll just do like a week, you know, to, you know, that kind of get in that tour grind. But uh, the whole for now, the whole cast is with us, so we'll we're all going to the same place. So that's cool too. I that's a new experience for me also. Yeah. You know, so like to um, uh, again, probably would have been better uh, if I was twenty seven. But <laughs> you know, uh, it's cool. It's still great now. You know, again. Uh, at my even though I do a lot of different things at my core, I'm an I'm an actor, and I you know I I love it. I will always complain about it, but at the end of the day, you know, <laughs> um, it's great. So come see it if you can. Uh, a great play uh, at a great theater um, with one of the coolest names uh, ever. So um, you know both Woolly Mammoth and Teenage Dick. So you really can't lose. <laughs> you know. Thank you so much, Mike and Greg. I hope to see you around very soon. Yeah, great to so see great you. To Thanks see you, so much Jose. for having Thank us. Thank you.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.